Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to Food Sex Politics. Nicole Rodriguez, RDN here. As always, with none other than Dave Sharotsky, the food porn unicorn. But Dave, tonight, I think thus far our most esteemed guest, we have Dr. Frank Mitloner of UC Davis's Animal Science Program. He is a professor of air quality. Hot topic right now. We are up in our game on this podcast. Big time, baby. We are going places. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Mitloner, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be on your show. It's, a, it's, it's really a pleasure. Very excited. So can you tell our audience a little bit about what you study specifically in terms of air quality and what is your specialty, so to speak? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm a professor and air quality specialist in the Department of Animal Science here at UC Davis, as you said. And uh, what that means is uh, that I do study the impact livestock and poultry has on air pollutants. Gases such as ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, greenhouse gases, particles, endotoxins, things that end up in the air that have the potential to hurt humans or animal health. And, um, and then furthermore, I study ways to minimize those emissions so that people and animals are protected from them. So really, your work focuses specifically on the actual animals, but not necessarily their transport or those, you know, those sectors of the food chain. So you're really focused on that, on that part where it's the actual animal involved, like in their, in their habitat until they're processed. Well, I would say that I do uh, study the broader impacts of livestock. So not just animals and the manure directly, but also the associated supply chains. Some of that cannot be measured directly, but is modeled. And so, uh, but we do assess those impacts as well. So I would say that I do uh, study the life cycle of livestock and poultry anywhere from soils to crops that the animals eat and that becomes feed uh, to the animals themselves, to their manure that's then sooner or later land applied as fertilizer, the products that uh, come from livestock and poultry that are transported, processed, and so on, all the way until they, they enter somebody's, somebody's mouth. And so that's so the life cycle of these products. Doctor, what are you seeing in terms of trends from maybe when you first started to now? Like what, what kind of uh, trends have you seen? With respect to environmental awareness or with respect to what? Uh, the, what kind the of trends? Air quality. Um, the lives of the livestock and everything. Like how, how has that gone since you first got into the industry? Well, you know, I'm not in the, in the industry, but I'm studying the industry. And from what I can tell over the last 30 years, um, the lives of the animals that I study has increased drastically, uh, has improved drastically. Uh, when I first started, pretty little was known about animal welfare. People concentrated on producing more and more and more and extracting more and more profit. And that was all that, that it was about, really. It was just a commodity. Uh, today, I see this being a different situation. I, I think that our farmers and ranchers are much more honed into what is it the animals need 
to be comfortable, to be as healthy and comfortable as uh, well taken care of as possible, because not just because they care for the animals, but that is one function that's critical for the animals to produce the optimal amount of product as well. So it's really um, um, a double whammy, okay? On the one hand, it's good for the animals, but it's also good for the farmer because if the animal is happy, then the farmer is happy because it makes him more money. So I, I have um, learned that over the last 20, 30 years, farmers um, implement much more scientific uh, advancers in their day-to-day -day practices, and that has had very positive impacts. And can you speak a bit to that impact on air quality? So I, I know it's a bit more nuanced than just saying things are, you know, the air is cleaner than it was in the 70s. But how have these advances in animal agriculture played a role in either maintaining or improving air quality? And let's, let's talk pre-COVID-19 first. Yeah. yeah, so I'll give you just a few examples. So in the 70s, we used to have about 50% more cattle, beef cattle than today. Five zero, 50% more beef cattle than we do today. But we produce the same amount of beef today as we did with this much smaller herd in 1970. On the dairy side, back in 1950, we used to have 25, 25 million dairy cows. Today we have 9 million dairy cows, so much fewer. But with the, mine, with the 9 million dairy cows today, we produce 60% more milk than we used to with 25 million cows back in 1950. In other words, we have cut our dairy herd numbers by over a factor of three, but we've increased the amount of milk we get from those cows by 60%. And that means that the environmental footprint of these cows has shrunk by two thirds. Whether we like it or not, improvements in efficiencies in livestock production have the same impact on the environment as improvements of fuel efficiencies in your car. You will know that the car that your grandparents drove versus the car that your parents drove versus the car that you drive today versus the car that your kids will drive are drastically different with respect to the fuel efficiency of these vehicles. And fuel efficiency doesn't mean anything other than getting you from A to B, let's say 100 miles, with a given amount of fuel. And I think everybody would agree that today we use way less fuel as your parents' or grandparents' uh, vehicle did. And, um, and with this fewer fuel that we burn today versus previously, we are producing way less emissions. And the same is true for livestock. We have drastically improved the, the health and the welfare of our animals, the production systems under which we produce animal and plant products, and that has had a drastic impact on the environmental footprint and outcomes. So, doctor, with the, the car example, like, I mean, it's obvious that you could see, you know, how we made machinery better and improved cars or technology yes. and computers and everything. How did we do that with livestock? Yeah, excellent question. So, um, for example, today we know what kind of endoparasites can bother our dairy cows, our beef cattle also. 
And what that means is we now know that if we don't deworm our cows, then certain parasites can get into their guts and these parasites will eat the nutrients that we really want to get into our, our cow's body. Um, so for example, in India, I just told you we have 9 million dairy cows in the United States. In India, they have 300 million dairy cows and buffaloes. And the reason why their numbers are so huge is because they have no veterinary care. They have no improved genetic material. They have no advanced feeding. They have no focus on reproductive efficiencies. We have all that. And the combination of these four factors has allowed us to become extremely efficient. So similar to the vehicles that now have computers regulating all the different things that a car must do um, and so forth, in the same thing we do today with livestock. Um, we have become extremely efficient because we understand the biology of these animals. We understand the biology of what they eat. We understand the, the context around diseases and preventing diseases. Um, and this, con this, this combination of factors has allowed us to develop a system that's pretty far optimized. So just as in a car, it seems, and as going back to this car analogy, it seems that every generation demands a bit more in terms of these things like efficiency and design and things like that. So how has customer demand driven some of these trends in animal agriculture? So for example, 10, 20 years ago, nobody cared about the carbon footprint of a cow. Nobody, okay? So nobody cared about how much methane came out of the front end of a cow. <laughs> Today, we do care about that. As a result, scientists like myself now look into ways that we can add feed additives to the diet of a cow that reduce the activity of the microbes in their stomachs that produce that gas. Uh, we can develop vaccines against methane. We can develop just simply more efficient cows. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on. You tell me a variable that you want to manipulate, that you want to change. And I tell you whether there's a technology that's known to man doing that. Um, today, when you compare our agricultural system here in the United States to anybody else's in the world, I can assure you that there is no, not even a close number two relative to uh, the efficiencies in livestock production and the associate environmental footprint um, to those here experienced in the United States. So why is that? Why wouldn't the rest of the world want to keep up or why wouldn't there be like a global push to basically get everybody on the same page? So in the developed world, so let's say in Europe, in the Americas in general, uh, livestock production is similar, but we are leading the way. So we are 10, 20, 30% uh, better than the others but we are all kind of in a group. Where things really fall apart is in parts of the developing world. And please don't get this wrong. I'm not pointing fingers at certain countries Thank saying, you. sorry, <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not. But, um, you know, maybe I do sometimes a little bit, but, you know, here's, here's, here's my, my take home message on this. So I already uh, pointed fingers at India, even though I said I'm not pointing fingers. Um, they have 300 million dairy animals. I already said that. 
they could produce the same amount of milk as they do today with 300 million animals, with 50 million instead. The same amount of milk, the same amount of product. But each individual animal there lives at the edge of, at the verge of, um, of being considered a dairy animal. I mean, the amount of milk each cow that produces is laughable. It is dismal. That's my one or 2,000 pounds of milk per cow per year. In the United States, that number is 23,000 pounds of milk per cow per year on average. So in these countries like India, in many African countries, in some of the South American countries, uh, production efficiencies in the livestock sector is so low that the herds are very large. And with the herds being very large, the environmental footprint is very large. And that is what generates global average environmental data that our distractors here in the United States and other developed parts of the world use to tell the world how bad it is to consume animal source foods. But it is disingenuous because the numbers they use are not numbers that apply to what we actually do here. I, just speaking to that point, I was listening to, I believe, one of your former students today, Dr. Place. She was, uh, she was showing uh, a map that literally shows all of these pockets of the world that are in these sort of situations of having, it sounds like just so many, for lack of a better term, unproductive animals. And you could see these pockets where the air quality is much, much poorer and those contributions so much greater than someplace like the US. Um, so is that a matter, and maybe this is not your exact area of study, but is, is that a matter of access to the kind of technology we have in the US or is it a reluctance? So I want to build on Dave's question a bit more. It is, uh, well, first of all, Sarah, yes, Sarah did her PhD in my lab and she is really an excellent, an excellent scientist. Uh, I don't know what she told you, but um, I just give you an example. Uh, so there are many developing countries in the world where production efficiencies in food production in general are very low, okay? And, and most of those countries are actually uh, on the continent of Africa. Um, but let's just go to China for a minute. And you know that China is not like your typical developing country. In fact, China is close to, uh, uh, to the United States with respect to economic um, uh, throughput and so forth. But here are some numbers. And these numbers stem from the time before they had the African swine fever outbreak uh, last year. So China consumes, well, China produces half of the world's pigs. They have a total of 50 million sows, producing a total of 1 billion, that's a B, 1 billion pigs per year. So again, that's half of the world's pork production. Of all these animals, of the 1 billion, they have a pre-weaning mortality, meaning animals that die before they're weaned from their mother, a pre-weaning mortality of 40%. Four zero. That means 400 million pigs produced in China never make it to the market, never make it through a human digestive tract, but are thrown onto a landfill. And that is China. We're not even talking about India. We're not talking about Africa. We're talking about China right now with a 40% mortality 
rate. Um, in other places of the developed world, it's much worse than that. And so China is a country that within five years built 25,000 miles of bullet trains. I mean, it's not that they don't know how to use technology and so on. Um, and I think they have learned to understand that technology has not really infiltrated their food system yet, but that's about to change. And it's, it's a change that they urgently need because otherwise they will become food insecure. And for some perspective, what's the, the mortality rate to the pre-weaning mortality rate on pigs in the United States off the top of your head? Two to 4%. Yeah. And that's pretty, that's pretty much average for cattle as well. Is that right? Somewhere it's very low. It's very low. Yeah, yeah, it's very low. Wow. Yes. So, so it's not just a matter of productivity globally, but also a matter of mortality because those are, no one's getting anything out of yeah. a, dead, <clears throat> a dead pig pile. Yeah, there are really four stuff. factors. There are really four factors. The one factor is reproduction. We've learned uh, to maximize or optimize reproductive rate of our livestock. Reproduction is one. The second one is veterinary care. We have learned to uh, prevent and treat diseases, and that has had a massive impact on productivity in general, agricultural productivity. So that's number two. Number three is uh, genetic advancements. We have learned to improve the genetic merit of our plant and animal agricultural systems. Our cow today produces way, way more milk or our beef cattle way more meat or our poultry way more uh, meat and, and or eggs than ever before. That's number three. And number four is we have learned to optimize uh, the nutrition of these animals so that they don't just have enough nutrients to stay alive and well, but also, in addition to that, have enough nutrients to optimize the amount of product they can produce. So again, it is reproduction, it's veterinary care, it's genetic merit, and it is nutrition. These four factors have allowed us here in the United States to shrink our livestock and poultry herds and flocks to historic levels. We have never had fewer livestock and poultry than we do today producing more food than we ever had. And with that reduction in actual numbers of livestock, can you speak to reduction in land use or how, maybe specifically cattle, how they are actually sort of their own stewards of the land that they do use? What's their contribution there? Yeah, I can speak to that. So <clears throat> globally of all the agricultural land that's in use for food production, uh, about 70%, 70 percent, seven zero of all agricultural land is so-called marginal land. And marginal means that this is land that's not suitable to grow crops because you either don't have soil quality that allows for crops to grow, or you don't have enough water for those crops. And so, Insufficient soil quality and insufficient water make 70% of all agricultural lands marginal lands. The remaining 30% is what we refer to as arable lands, mm -hmm. and arable land is where you can grow crops. 
So another question people ask me is, well, how do we currently use this marginal land, 70%? And the answer to that is that almost without exception, we use that 70% of marginal land with ruminant livestock, beef, dairy, goats, and sheep. And the reason why we use them, these ruminant animals, to, to uh, uh, for this land, for this marginal land, is because they have a unique ability to convert non-human edible feedstuff, namely cellulose containing grasses and legumes into highly valuable and digestible animal source foods, meaning they eat cellulose. That's a carbohydrate that neither pigs nor poultry nor humans uh, can ingest and digest. <clears throat> and they convert that cellulose into volatile fatty acids and eventually then into meat and milk and so on. So 70%, as we speak, 70% of all agricultural land in the world and in the United States is used to graze ruminant livestock. And the only reason for that is that nothing else would work there. We can't just grow crops there and or uh, raise other livestock, non-ruminant livestock, because the, the ground simply doesn't supply it. So and that leaves 30% of all agricultural land, the so-called arable land, to grow the crops for both human and animal consumption uh, purposes. Can you go back to that bit about, now we, we call cattle the ultimate upcyclers, right? Because they take these forages and, in edibles and maybe the things that would otherwise go to waste like from from production and they turn it into beef. So what is the what is the trade-off there? Like what if all of that was just left to rot? It really wouldn't have any other purpose, right? So aren't the cattle thereby making another contribution? or lessening the impact on air quality? Because wouldn't those things end up in a landfill, theoretically? So obviously put a Walmart there. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, when people think of California, and I'll get to your question in a second. When people think of California, they think of Hollywood and Silicon Valley and so on. What people don't really think of when they think of California is the fact that we are by far the number one agricultural state in the United States. We produce twice as much commodity-wise compared to the number two agricultural state. We have an, an immense amount of crop production in the state and 20 to 30 percent of the crop byproducts end up in a ruminant stomach. And without those ruminants, that material that that is a byproduct, a co-product, would normally become waste and either go to landfill or just rot under the sky. The reason why we have all that livestock in California, for example, the reason why we have 20% of the US dairy cows in California is that we have such an abundant amount of feed from all the other agricultural commodities. So we are feeding cotton seeds and almond uh, hulls and uh, you know, kiwis that are spent and so on, all different kinds of products. Um, and our cows eat that and it's excellent feed stuff. Um, and that's one thing, that's upcycling. 
but even more of an upcycling is when you consider all the grazing that's done uh, from dairy and, and beef cattle <clears throat> that eat grass that is non-human edible and nobody else can digest it, but they can. And so they take something that is of no other purpose, no other use when it comes to human nutrition, and they convert it into something that's nothing short of a miracle with respect to nutritional, to nutrient content. Because if you look at what's in a glass of milk or what's in a steak or so, nutrient-wise, the bioavailability of what's in there uh, is almost unsurpassed. The only nutrient, uh, the only food item that I can think of that's more nutrient-dense would probably be an egg. But other than that, it is, uh, it is, it is, it is kind of a kind of a miracle what our nutrient, what our ruminant animals do. Now you asked me, Nicole, about a trade-off. There is a trade-off. The fact that these ruminant animals can make use of, let's say, cellulose or other co-products from from agriculture is that they have microbes in their rumen that can digest uh, stuff like cellulose, and an unintended consequence of that process is the fact that <clears throat> that they produce methane. Uh, that methane is an unintended consequence of the ability of those animals to eat, to digest stuff that nobody else can. That's the price we pay to recycle vast amount of biomass that otherwise would go to waste. Seems like a pretty fair trade-off to me. Dave, what do you think? I just keep trying to get a doctor to keep saying California because he sounds like Schwarzenegger. I keep trying to think of a way for me to get him to say get in the chopper. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I probably can get there. I probably can get there. If you just provoke me enough, then. I like it. So I, I would say a pretty, that's a pretty miraculous trade-off. Um, and what would you say, I think, on the other end of the spectrum, we know that there are some people who think that we should somehow magically be rid of animal agriculture altogether and we should all just eat plants, right? And that, that's it, just eat plants and nothing else. Uh, would that even be possible as far as soil quality without animal waste? Like what is the role of animal waste in soil quality for other crops? So first of all, uh, the people you're talking about are a very small group of people who like to uh, beat themselves on the chest and call themselves a, a major movement, okay? Yes. It is, it is simply not, it is not accurate. Uh, just because they're loud doesn't mean that they represent any kind of uh, large segment of society. The vast majority of people in this country, the vast majority, over 98%, do like to consume animal source foods. That's just as a little preamble here. But um, with respect to those who think we should uh, divorce ourselves from animal source foods, I think that if we were to go that route, uh, and I have uh, scientific evidence for that, then that would indeed reduce our, let's say, carbon footprint. It would do that, though, to an extent that uh, is in the order of 2.4%. Uh, so if we were to go vegan as a nation, as a nation, all 330 million Americans were to go vegan, we would reduce the carbon footprint of the nation by 2.4%. 
But the authors of this Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences paper uh, cautioned that if we were to go such a route, we would not be able to satisfy the essential macro micronutrients needed to nourish the people in this country. I don't think anybody in their right mind would want that. But I also want to caution you that these discussions might be discussions we might want to have in the ivory tower, okay? We can talk about this here at the university or with you guys um, and kick this ball around. But in reality, the real world would never consider such a thing. If you talk to Joe Blow on the street, if they were to consider getting rid of any animal source foods in their diet, they would think you have lost your marbles. <laughs> okay? It's not just... It's not just something that is high in nutrient value that we know. Uh, it's not just something that has a certain environmental footprint, but it's something that's culturally grown. It's something that's part of our makeup. It's something that we simple, li simply like the taste of. I mean, when people go to the supermarket, they don't stand in front of the shelves and wonder which of all these food items here has the lowest carbon footprint or has the lowest water footprint, but they wonder, what is it that I feel like feeding my family this week, right? That's yeah. what you and I think of. Absolutely. And, and, and what's good for me overall? And, and if I have the choice of four or five different brands, then I might want to think about if the price uh, allows me so uh, to do so, which one of those are the most responsible producers also. But I tell you what, COVID-19 has taught me something. COVID-19 has taught me that a shock to our system, like the one we're experiencing right now, gives us a little bit more of a reality check, a real reality check. Do you think that in a month we will still listen to some anti-vaxxers who say we should, not, we should not ever get a vaccine? I think the whole world wants a vaccine right now. Do you think anybody would ever say we don't want any GMOs when in fact that vaccine will be a GMO? It will be a genetically modified uh, thing that will be injected into us to protect us from this COVID-19 thing. Uh, do you think that people will be as picky about where their food comes from uh, they, in the future compared to um, the way they were two months ago? I don't think so. I think people, uh, now that they have experienced some food shortages, in the supermarket, now that they have experienced that there's a potential shock to the system that's so large that uh, we actually need, need to protect our farmers. Our farmers are the people who feed us every day, like it or not. They are the people who produce all the nutrients that we ingest day after day after day. Whether they are processed, ultra-processed, or not processed at all, all those ingredients grow on a farm. It is time for us to get off their backs and get their backs. I'm, I'm here for all of that. You know that I think we need to recognize them as essential workers. And I think that's been, I think that's been a real positive over the past few weeks uh, is that a lot of, it seems that a lot of chatter has died down and we've gone back to some basics and I do think a little bit more appreciation for food and, and a little bit less ideology, which is refreshing. Um, what, are some, what are some other changes that people are talking about in terms of air quality 
during, you know, now that we're what about six weeks into the pandemic, because I'm seeing, <laughs> I'm seeing different things and that it's been great for the environment and air quality has improved. What's, what's the real story there? I feel like so, the animals are getting really suspicious of us because every time I go and I walk the kids around the neighborhood, all of a sudden, like the wild, like the squirrels or whatever, they stop and they look at us like, <laughs> what are you up to? What are you doing? I know you're so, up to something. So let me tell you this first. Um, to me, and I'm an air quality specialist, to me, the discussion is um, the discussion around, wow, look at this this pandemic here. It's really cleaned up our air. Um, is one that's almost cynical you know because it has it has had such a devastating impact um on the world about a third of the world population is in lockdown uh you know tens of thousands of people have died just think about that i mean we now have a, over a million infected people in the united states we have 60,000 people who died that's not just a number that's 60,000 families affected and their friends we have now as of today 30 million 30 million unemployed in this country uh i mean and we haven't seen the end of this okay this is just the start of the economic downturn uh, and this is just one country the most powerful of all in the world the developing world hasn't even seen this thing yet because they are normally located on the southern hemisphere and their fall and winter are about to start. So this thing has enormous cons consequences, enormous consequences. And we have not seen the end of this yet. So, um, but to your question, uh, what are we actually seeing here when we look at satellite images showing uh, air pollution uh, three years ago, two years ago, last year, and this year. Has anything changed? The answer is yes. Things have changed drastically. Why? Because not just has supply screeched to a hold of everything, not just food, of everything, of uh, you know, transportation and you name it, the entire economy, and at the same time, demand has screeched to a halt, not entirely, but to a large amount. So in the food sector, with all restaurants and schools closing, about half of the food we produce in this country has no more home right now and is being, is being destroyed. And that is devastating. For me to see that 70% of all vegetables produced in Florida have been plowed under because there were no more restaurants to buy this stuff, is a travesty you know for me to see milk going down the drain in wisconsin because schools are shut down uh you know how terrible is that with these uh, recent closures of packing plants we have enormous shock waves going through all of animal agriculture from breeders all the way to finishing operations so um but going back to air quality here so um the air has cleaned up for air pollutants that form smog. And smog is, an, is a, uh, a health consideration, a health problem for people. So those ingredients that form smog have come down drastically so because these are the results of uh, fossil fuel burning, the burning of oil, coal, and gas that we do with cars, trucks, trains, planes, ships, and so on. That has screeched to a halt. We are not... 
producing um, fossil fuel-related emissions. And that's true. Um, and that has improved air quality. But animal agriculture is normally blamed for other things, namely gases like ammonia or methane, the greenhouse gas, or certain odors. And agriculture has not wound down, but agriculture is going full throttle. So the emissions that agriculture generally produces are still the same emissions that agriculture produces today. What has changed is that other sectors of society now produce less of the emissions they normally produce. So people in agriculture should not now jump up and down and say, you see, we have always known uh, we, we are just the scapegoat of, uh, of society and it's not really our fault. But instead they should say, all right, so we are producing certain gases, the rest of society produces their gases and their pollutants. Um, you know, it's interesting for us to see what other people's contributions are. We know, we have always known what ours are, and we continually decrease what we are being blamed for and what we are responsible for. That's the discussion we should have. Uh, and in my opinion, we should not sleep, wake sleeping giants and say, see, we're doing so much better than anybody else because if anybody else becomes much better, meaning emits much less, then our piece of the total pie becomes larger because we keep doing what we always have been doing because we have to keep feeding people. And Does that, that make sense? I'd absolutely, and that's that was really the impetus why I really wanted to have you on tonight is to really explain that bit. It sounds like it's it's not a time to be gloating from the agricultural perspective, so to speak, and that's why I wanted your perspective to get to the real like different facets of contributors right now. That's really interesting. So. You know, Nicole, you, know, you know, Nicole, what should make us gloat is the fact that over the last 10 years, we have undertaken incredible steps to quantify the environmental footprint of beef, of dairy, of poultry, of pigs, and so on. We now know what they are, what the carbon footprints are, the water footprints. We know what the nitrogen footprints are. We know so much about the environmental footprint of our livestock and poultry and feed sector today. And we haven't stopped there. We, it was peer reviewed and published and it's out for everybody to read, everybody who's interested in it. Um, but in addition, in addition to knowing what our impacts are, we have made further pledges to reduce more. In California, for example, over the last two years, we have reduced 25% of our methane. 25%. That is truly Huge. remarkable. That's truly remarkable. And the total pledge of the industry is a 40% reduction. So instead of saying, look what everybody else does and how we compare to everybody else, we should leave that be and concentrate of who we are, what we do, how important we are to society, how critical, how strategically critical we are to, to society, in producing food and how we take this charge in the most responsible way with not just um, you know gloating into what we have done so far but um, you know living up to the pledges we have we have made i love it and you can see things like that with 
I don't know what every industry does, but I know there's the BQA program in the beef industry and they're just, they're constantly striving to minimize that environmental impact through a lot of the avenues that you discussed earlier. And, and I think that's, that's something that we don't hear about that often, but I think that story is coming out more and more that that piece of how the farmer is a steward of the land and the great care that goes into production and delivering these products. You know, you know, you know, Nicole, the other day I heard, I heard one of the greatest critics of U.S. beef, one of the greatest critics of international beef say the following. That person said in public, he's from Princeton, he said, the U.S. produces 18%, that's one eight, 18% of the global beef with 8% of the global beef herd. 18% of the global beef with 8% of the global cattle. And he said, and in my opinion, if there were a place in the world to produce beef, it should be here. Because nobody knows how to do it better than we do. And that was the greatest critic I've ever heard, uh, turning around, coming around on a 180, okay? A 180. We have a lot to be proud of. We have a lot of stories to tell. We just have to become a whole lot better in telling those. And that's just it. Why are we so good at marketing all the bullshit? But why are we so bad at marketing that when it's actually important? I think agriculture is notoriously bad in uh, talking about what they do and why and how and so on. Uh, people in agriculture are conservative people. They say, we know what we do, leave us alone. Uh, we produce the stuff you need, so just buy our stuff. And that is no longer cutting it. Today, you have to make noise. Uh, some of the critics make a lot of noise. Think of those plant-based alternatives to beef, for example. The makers of those products make so much noise that it hurts in your ears. Um, and they're good at that. And uh, the people producing the original, uh, they never really felt they had to tell their story. But I think farmers should really use this time as a time of opportunity rather than viewing it as a challenge. Because we have many, many people in their 20s and 30s who are now interested in food. For the first time, really interested in food. They want to know how it's grown, how it's cooked, how it should be consumed or not, how it should be wasted or not, uh, and so forth. And, uh, and the people who know the most about it are our farmers. And I understand not everybody is media trained and so on, but some are really good communicators and those who are should speak up. And I think this is another place where we kind of get into some weeds, right? Because there's a difference between the factory farmers and the actual farmer farmers, right? Like the family farmers, the factory farmers, probably more the criticism, probably more likely to speak up, whereas your family farm, definitely not so much, right? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen both. Uh, I've seen both. And, you know, quite frankly, I also think we need both. Um, uh, if you look at the total amount of food that we consume in a country like this, um, we couldn't do it just with a bunch of, of, of um, uh, grass-finished operators or so. We, we do need the entire supply chain, and we, need, we, do need to pay, we do need to have people play in the sandbox with one another, and we do have to, uh, to learn from one another. And uh, in my opinion, 
uh, agriculture should really do a much better job of showing some cohesiveness as opposed to fragmentation. You know, if there's one big enemy agriculture has, it's agriculture itself. It's one commodity against another commodity. It's one segment within a commodity against the other segment within the same commodity. It's, uh, it's uh, the oldest story in the books. And uh, it's one that I think uh, really should come to an end. And uh, farmers should understand we all in this together, we all produce food and fiber and, and other uh, aspects that people need. And uh, we all need it. We all supply certain things that, that, that are in demand. And whether you supply something to a carnivore or to a vegan or anything in between, uh, there's a market for it and we are in it together. So uh, this infighting has to stop. That really has to stop because it fuels a lot of these distractors that are already uh, hopping like crazy on everything farmers do. Well, Dave, I think I'd like to get to our lightning food round. Are you ready? Lightning round. Now, doctor, where in Germany are, are you from? I'm from a place near the Dutch border. Fiersen is the name, and uh, it's uh, not very far from Dusseldorf. Very cool. So can we do a little German lightning round for German food? Sure. Try <laughs> me. Outstanding. All right. <laughs> Yay. All right. Would you rather do, Nicole and I will go one off on this one, so I'll, I'll take the first one. Would you rather do potato pancakes or potato salad? Potato salad, for sure. German potato salad all day. I'm with you. All right, sauerkraut or that delicious warm red cabbage dish? Ooh. You know, if sauerkraut is done well, it's really awesome. Uh, most people don't know what it's done, what it's like when it's done well, but, you know, if you eat that with a Kuslow or, so, or with a Huxen, sauerkraut is awesome. Okay. Do you make your own? Uh, no, I don't make my own. But I have to say, the red cabbage with a goose, oh my gosh, don't get me going. <laughs> <laughs> All right, would you go bratwurst or currywurst? Um, currywurst. Nice. Okay. A, Ber a Berlin cur currywurst, by the way. That's where currywurst comes from, from the city of Berlin. And it's really excellent there. Now, these are two totally different dishes, if you had to pick. Uh, schnitzel or spetzel? I probably mispronounced the spetzel. No, spetzle. That's right. Mm -hmm. Spetzle is, uh, you know, it's a German pasta, and it's it's good, but I prefer the schnitzel. Oh yeah, I'm I'm with you there. Uh, Kolsch or Pilsner on beers? Pilsner. Okay, Dave, you got dessert. Dessert. What was dessert? Dessert. We have apple cushion or beasting cake. What was the last one? Beasting cake. Beasting cake. Oh, oh, Bienenstich. Oh, okay. So, Apfelkuchen oder Bienenstich. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sounds so much better when you say it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a lot of training there. So, I would say Bienenstich. That's the, what you call Beasting cake. Bienenstich. <laughs> Can you tell us what that, what that actually is? What, what goes into that? Oh, it has uh, it has almond slivers on it, and it's caramelized. It's it's awesome. It's really good. That sounds divine. I think we put together a really fantastic menu here. I have to say. 
We're all going out to California. We're going to have all those things. <laughs> Please come and visit me, and I'd be glad to, uh, to host you. Way around. Exactly. Whip it, whip it all up. Dr. Mitloner, thank you so, so much for joining us tonight. I think a lot of these insights are just so timely, and our listeners will really enjoy them. Be well, stay safe, and we hope to connect with you again soon. Absolutely. Hey, thank you for having me. And just so in case that if, if anybody's interested, I am uh, on Twitter and my Twitter handle is GHG Guru. GHG Guru for Greenhouse Gas Guru. Uh, if anybody wants to connect further, that's where I am. It's going, in the, it's going in the show notes. Thanks so much. Good night, all. Doctor, we appreciate you. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye.